Good afternoon and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. We have one case on for argument this afternoon, State v. King. Um, over the holidays, I picked up some respiratory things, so other than when I'm directly talking to you, I'm going to be wearing a mask in deference to my folks here, but we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you. And have you reserved the time you want for? Yes, Your Honor. Five minutes for rebuttal, please. Okay. Proceed. May it please the court. My name is Karen Strickland, and I represent Jason King. The trial court erred both in denying Mr. King's motion to dismiss and in his sentencing. Starting with the motion to dismiss, Mr. King was forced to serve an illegal active sentence after he filed a notice of appeal. While in custody, Mr. King suffered an epileptic seizure, fell, and hit his head on the concrete floor, causing him to suffer a concussion. Counsel, let me, let me stop you. So yes, Your Honor. as it pertains to the time that was served, where would, what, what purpose would uh, either, because um, obviously the appeal was filed not in the court that day upon sentencing, but what role would an, a petition for an appeal bond played in being able to help rectify the situation? Yes, Your Honor. If I'm understanding your question, and let me know if I'm not, I believe that under the statute, filing the notice of appeal was supposed to automatically stay the sentence, mm -hmm. and so he should have been brought in and released immediately. Understood, but that's not the question. The question is, what would have, what role would petitioning the court for the appeal bond played? I think it would have gotten him out more quickly, but I believe that in this situation, because it was supposed to be automatic, mm -hmm. there wasn't any, there shouldn't have been any duty on his counsel to have brought that. It, it appears that it was an oversight in the clerk's office that led to him essentially overstaying his sentence after he should have been released. And I believe that fact was accepted as true by the state and the trial court. I guess, but, and I don't know how much you're trying DWIs in district court, but uh, is, is there not the stance that the state has the ability to wish to be heard on whether appeal bond would be appropriate in a case like this? I think with respect to the appeal bond, I'm not sure the answer to your question, but with respect to it being stayed under the statute, mm -hmm. that should have been automatic. Okay. That operates by virtue of statute, and at a minimum, he, he should have gotten the hearing. So um, I believe in this case, it's, it's clear from the record that he should have been released, um, but he wasn't. And on around day three of his stay in custody, he fell, hit his head on the floor, and suffered a concussion. And then he received no medical treatment for days. After he was released, he went to the hospital and learned that he had suffered long-term memory impairments as a result of the injuries he suffered in custody. Well, let me ask you about the five-day um, intermittent time between the time he was released and the time he went to the hospital. What is the reason behind that, if you know? Your Honor, I don't believe there is a reason for that in the record. What the record does show is that he went, I think he was released on the, the 7th or 8th of September. He went to the hospital 
Mission Hospital on September 11th to the emergency room, and that's when he was diagnosed with a concussion. And this is all from his medical records. Um, and then he went back for follow-up treatment on September 14th and September 16th. And so what counsel put forth in the motion to dismiss was coming from his medical records and basically stating that the doctors had found that he suffered these long-term memory impairments and amnesia, not just in the sense that he couldn't remember things, but that his memory was unreliable and inconsistent to the point where his trial counsel was actually concerned that he might it potentially expose himself, I mean, perjury is not the right term, but say something incorrect or misremember facts from the offense. And so his trial counsel simply felt that he could not do right by his client and even afford him the choice whether to testify, which is what gives rise to the irreparable prejudice to the preparation of his case. Because it is a structural error for a client to not have their protected autonomy right, the language used in McCoy v. Louisiana, uh, to be able to decide not just whether to testify, but to make even that decision and to be able to assist counsel in the defense. Um, so that was, that was coming back to these facts being alleged in the verified pleading and being accepted as true by the state and the trial court. The trial court concluded, contrary to McCoy v. Louisiana and cases from our state courts, that there was no violation of the client's rights, and this is, quote, narrowed down to the right to testify on his own behalf and defend himself in this case, because the trial court believed that it was speculation whether Mr. King would actually testify in his defense. Again, this conclusion was error as a matter of law because the right to assist in one's own defense is a substantial right, the denial of which is structural error. So Mr. King had a right to meaningfully assist and direct his own defense, regardless of whether he would have testified and regardless of whether the outcome would have been different at trial. And he could not do so because of the memory loss he suffered due to the injuries in custody. This flagrant constitutional violation irreparably prejudiced the preparation of his case. Counsel, on the issue of flagrant, get, it, get me two facts that substantiate, and obviously in comparison to some of the other cases where <clears throat> there was statements by counsel of guilt. Um, how, how does that get us to there? I'm sorry, I missed the last part. How does, how does him not being able to testify? Because obviously the colloquy that happened between him and the judge, you know, during the trial was yes, he right. decided not to. Yes. Um, he didn't get up there. He didn't have moments of memory loss on the stand. There, there's nothing other than the allegation that this is a medical diagnosis, but there wasn't that actual conduct in the trial. <coughs> so... In the case law, in comparison, defense counsel admits guilt um, or some things along those lines. How does these facts equal flagrant? Yes, Your Honor. I think that, could, that question could actually be broken up into several parts. But first, the first part, I think, is to be very clear about the record here. If 
counsel had put his client, Mr. King, on the stand to try to testify, he would be prejudicing his client and not be doing right by his client if he believed, which I believe was reasonable based on the medical records and the undisputed facts, it would be highly prejudicial to put Mr. King on as, as a witness and have him basically impugn his own credibility. And so, so if it was to that level, would it not be wise for counsel to request for a, a mental eval for his client? Yes, Your Honor. I think that issue was addressed in the transcript and what counsel believed was that it didn't rise to that level of a competency issue where he wasn't capable of managing his own affairs, but he did think that because of the medical condition, the amnesia, that he was having difficulty both with consistency and reliability in recalling these details of the, the offense. But I think with respect to the remainder of your question, how this relates legally, I've cited McCoy. I also think that the case law from Williams and back to State v. Hill in 1971, um, those line of cases, my, uh, my friend on the other side cites a lot of cases where irreparable prejudice means here was some specific evidence that I would have put on and how it would have helped my case. But I think even if you go back in the line of cases to State v. Hill, for example, that showing is not necessarily required when there is such a denial of a fundamental right that it is considered to be structural error. So in Hill, the, the defendant was denied the right to counsel and the right to obtain witnesses on his behalf. And the court specifically said they weren't going to do the next step of the inquiry and look into how this would have affected his trial <coughs> because it's, it's uh, to use the word from McCoy, it's an immeasurable impact. I guess arguably it is immeasurable, but in this instance, isn't it possibly measurable whenever, even though he didn't testify, even though there's the allegation that he wasn't able to participate as effectively in district court, isn't it also true that he was acquitted of at least two charges, I believe they were? So, so how do we turn a blind eye to the acquittal of charges uh, when, and so he's in a better situation as far as his criminal liability coming out of it, even with the alleged infirmaries? Isn't, isn't that possible? That's an interesting point. He was acquitted on two of the charges, and I think that shows that his counsel was able to defend him in certain respects, but I also think that that's not necessarily the end of the inquiry because the right at issue here. Well, I guess here, my, my yes. question though, isn't that something that can be measured? When the, argument, when the argument is that it's immeasurable, the harm is immeasurable. Well, in this instance, we have something to measure that lessen the harm from a criminal liability standpoint. Right, however, he was convicted on the other two charges, which were really the, the drivers of his sentence here. And I, I think the perhaps maybe the more um, a positive way to look at it is the fact that this is a de novo appeal from district court. And that was one of the things that the trial court emphasizes. Well, you've already seen the evidence in your case. Your attorney can put on a defense for you, but he was convicted on all four charges in district court. And yes, he had a mixed result in the superior court, but there were still charges on which he was convicted. And I mean, just as an example, in the criminal defense world, we view our clients as they are the sources of information. They were the ones who were there. We were not there. So 
For example, you could have one of the troopers who was on the stand in this case. Perhaps they're testifying to facts and maybe they misremembered something or maybe they're exaggerating or there are facts that are just incorrect. That's the sort of thing that you would hope and expect as an attorney that your client would be attuned to and would be able to tell you, hey, I was there, they got it wrong. But if the client can't reliably remember the facts of the offense, they're really hampered in their ability to participate meaningfully well, and assist counsel in the defense. Wouldn't that be true in the same situation where you have someone who was intoxicated and couldn't remember what actually happened during an event and wouldn't be able to guide counsel through whether or not the law enforcement officer was stating the same facts. It seems like kind of a Pandora's box in that regard. Yeah, I think there's a valid distinction to be made, though, between being intoxicated at the time of the offense but being, I suppose, entirely competent and able to participate in the defense at the time of trial because regardless of whether they remember those specific facts, maybe counsel could lodge some sort of defense based on the intoxication or something like that. But at a minimum, the client would be able to say, well, I was intoxicated at the time of the offense, X, Y, Z, things happened, here's what I can remember, here's what I can't remember. But I think what we're saying is that at even a more fundamental level than that, Mr. King really couldn't even engage in that sort of inquiry with his counsel because of the long-term memory impairments and amnesia that he suffered. So I, we recognize this is, a, this is a novel case. I think that the trial court said below that it was, it's an issue of first impression. It's not like a typical null case or case in, involving a Brady violation or something like that, but it still fits the facts of this very broad an important right to be able to substantially assist one's defense. And I think it's really critical here. There wasn't a written order in this case, but there were fairly clear findings made and concessions by the state made on the record that are in the transcript. So let me start with page 18, what the state said. We know, looks like, based on information from defense counsel, and this is the medical records that counsel was discussing in the motion, he wound up having a seizure or a medical situation in custody of our detention center. And then at page 19, the state says, the state feels that though there may be a prejudice to his preparation, it is not irreparable at this point. Uh, we also have findings from the <coughs> trial court. I'll just skip to page 30 because I think that's the crux of the matter. Uh, the, the I'm sorry, page 29, the trial court says, I think you did say he has some sort of amnesia as a result of the seizure at the jail on day three, which was through no fault of his own. And it sounds like it was an illegal judgment. He should not have been there. The minute he lodged the appeal, the court didn't consider an appeal bond. But the trial court concluded, I cannot say there's been a violation of your rights because it, he didn't say whether he would actually testify. Um, there are other findings. On page 21, the trial court stated, it sounds like an illegal judgment was entered. You cannot get more than 48 hours on a level four on a split. I agree with you on that. That is an illegal judgment. On page 22, so what you mentioned that did get my attention is the memory loss. How does that relate? 
Um, and the trial court said the idea of the memory loss affecting or impairing the ability to aid in your defense is lost on me there because you prepared the case, because his counsel prepared the case. But the court even acknowledged had there been a situation that happened without that trial, the district court trial, the situation may be different. And further, the trial court says on page 23, the idea that it's irreparable, I have to disagree on that because you have an opportunity. It may not be identical, it may not be the same, but it should be similar evidence coming in now that you would have heard from district court. So I think if you look at the totality of the record and everything that was said by the state and the trial court, it seems that there was largely agreement on the facts here that he, he did suffer from this deliberate indifference, an epileptic seizure, a concussion while he was in custody, and he had these long-term memory impairments, but both the state and the trial court seemed to believe that so long as he saw the evidence in district court and so long as he didn't unequivocally say, I will testify or I want to testify in superior court, that any prejudice was not irreparable. And so I think when you look at all of that, the area of disagreement is somewhat narrow between the, what the state said in its uh, concessions below and the trial court's findings and our contention, which is that this is a structural error and that that inquiry was inappropriate to assess whether he would have specifically testified. I guess, counsel, in, in looking at McCoy and evaluating the reputable prejudice, how, and there's some language I think in Johnson v. U.S. of total deprivation. So defense counsel admitting guilt, complete, you know, that there, you can't undo that, that bail, right? So how is there irreparable prejudice for a total deprivation of, of that right to counsel when there's been no real true finding that he could not assist in some degree? I guess there, there, the issue in this case really is the degree at which he could participate with counsel. So there's no finding or no concession that he was completely incapacitated from interacting with counsel. So because of that, what percentage or what facts gets us to irreparable prejudice because he was only able to do it, you know, for five minutes at a time whenever they met or, you know, he couldn't do it at all? What facts lead me to irreparable prejudice? I think, Your Honor, the way that irreparable would be defined is not necessarily in terms of a percentage because, again, I think this is one of those things where it isn't measurable. So it's, it's just not really something. It, the point of a structural error is that it's difficult to undertake that inquiry and it's, it's essentially impossible to look in hindsight how it would have turned out. And so that's why the court basically stops at saying, well, this is a structural error. Um, in terms of the level that he's incapacitated, I mean, I agree this doesn't rise to the level of incompetency, but I think that everybody recognized that it did prevent him from meaningfully assisting his counsel and directing his defense. Did you see the six instances that the Supreme Court has found structural error or listed out those in, in Johnson? in the Johnson case? 
had you have you seen that case and reviewed where one of those factors is a total in the language is total deprivation of right to counsel right and I think that's what we would argue that we have here we have because the right is defined broadly as the protected autonomy right of the defendant I mean I don't I don't think anybody's saying well he, he could have partly assisted his counsel because maybe he remembered some things. I think the problem is that while he may have been competent to handle his own affairs, he simply could not remember with any level of consistency or reliability the details of this, this incident. And so I think that that would play out in, in many different ways. I think that is a structural denial with an immeasurable effect. I think it is in line with cases like Ferretta v. California when you talk about the right to counsel. The court is very clear that you don't look at what would have been the result uh, or would the result have been different at trial if that right had not been denied. So um, I think what you're asking is really maybe narrowly a, a factual question based on this record whether it was a total deprivation and I think, I think that it was. I think that it was because everybody seemed to agree about these memory impairments and the effect that it had on him. The question was whether it was irreparable prejudice when his counsel was still capable of maybe putting on a case or doing the best that he could. And I would just argue that that's the wrong framing of it because the right properly framed is the defendant's right to meaningfully participate in his own defense, not the right to have competent counsel represent him without his assistance. I guess, counsel, I, I agree that the record shows that everybody agreed there was injury. I just don't see in the record where everybody's saying the injury totally deprived him from being able to interact with the counsel. And if you if you see that in, in those, what you said were findings of fact and transcript where the trial judge said, yeah, I don't think he can adequately assist at all, then I'll, I'll I'll listen for where you point me to it, but there is, seems to be an agreement that there was an injury, but not an injury that totally deprived him from being able to interact with counsel. So if, if, if that's in the transcript, I'll listen to what page you point me to, but I, I don't think it's in there. So uh, that, that was my question earlier as far as what gets us to total deprivation and so I don't disagree that there might be some instances where he could not maybe remember this or that, but I don't see in the transcript where there was a hearing had or there was a competency evaluation done to where there are facts showing a total deprivation. Yes, yes, Your Honor. I mean, I, I would just point again to the, the transcript. It's unfortunate that there wasn't a written order in this case, but um, what we have again is we have the state saying there was a seizure or a medical situation and we have the trial court repeatedly acknowledging that there was memory loss um, and what the trial court I think was hung up on was how that how that memory loss essentially why couldn't his counsel just go ahead and do his thing basically with, without the assistance of um, of Mr. King, and I think I, I would put it again on page 28 and 29, the only thing you've lost, if anything, is the ability for your client to testify. 
So I think the trial court is at, at least implicitly acknowledging that this memory loss is severe enough to prevent the client from testifying. And, but she says, unless your client plans on testifying, nothing has been lost. And so again, we, our argument is that that is, um, that is structural error and that we should not have to show whether or not he would have testified. I know I do want to talk about this sentencing issue um, a little bit. I know I'm, I'm uh, running out of time, but I also want to emphasize that on the sentencing issue, it seems that the area of disagreement between the state and our position is fairly narrow. The state agrees that Mr. King must be resentenced for reckless driving, and the state also agrees that the trial court erred in relying on all three aggravating factors. So the question here really is whether the Blakely constitutional harmless error standard applies to the trial court's deviation from the required statutory procedure under 20-179. And we would argue that this issue is controlled by the plain text of the statute. And so whether Blakely harmless error applies as a constitutional matter is somewhat beside the point because the statute itself provides that all aggravating factors must be submitted to the jury. And so when the trial court deviated from this statutory procedure, it violated the plain terms of the statute. And the means to determine prejudice under 1443 is to look at whether Mr. King's sentence was increased as a result of the error, which it was. It was increased from level four to level three as a result. And so we would submit that following the approach in State v. Geisler Crane, as well as State v. Hughes, which involved an analogous provision with providing notice of aggravating factors, compels the result that he has to be resentenced. Counsel, I have one yeah. question, and I'm fine if you want to give her more time since I'm stepping on her saving. It's kind of a two-part question. One, in light of there being notice for the driving, especially reckless, that was noticed, I do believe. How does the fact that there was no mitigating factors established play into not looking at the harmless error analysis? Because if that was noticed and there was nowhere in the record showing any mitigating factors, how do you not evaluate at least that you know, aggravating factor that was noticed and that being used under a harmless error analysis since in light of the fact that there is the records devoid of any mitigating factors? Mitigating factors in terms of sentencing. Um, so I think the way that this would play out is the impaired driving statute really curtails this, uh, the sentencing discretion of the trial court. And so if there's no evidence of mitigating factors or aggravating factors, the sentence has to be at a level four. But in this instance, there's at least notice for one aggravating factor. So in, right. li in light of that being noticed right. and being in the record, how do you not look at harmless error analysis if you don't have any mitigating factors in the record? Uh, because our position is that the same analysis would apply to the jury trial procedure as the notice procedure. There's simply no means to distinguish between the two under the statute. And so the, the constitutional test that was established in Blackwell was established before the General Assembly enacted this procedure for submitting aggravating factors to the jury. 
But I also want to note that we don't concede that the error would be harmless. The state would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, even if the harmless error standard applied, and that if that we think that it's really up to the jury to determine whether this driving was, it's not just reckless, but it's especially reckless. And uh, we just don't think that the evidence would necessarily be so overwhelming and uncontested that it would, as a matter of law, any rational juror would find that that standard was met. The, the evidence, in essence, showed that Mr. King was swerving and hitting his brakes for about 15 minutes, and an off-duty trooper was behind him and saw this and called, called it in. There's no evidence that anybody else called it in. Um, and the jury found that this was reckless driving. But there are other missing factors that could have made this offense far more reckless or especially reckless. For example, there's no evidence that he drove off the road. There's no evidence that he was driving at an extremely excessive speed. There's no evidence that he hit anybody. And one of the, uh, the troopers testified that when he was behind Mr. King, he appropriately came to a full stop at a red light and then pulled over after he put his blue lights on. So we would submit that it was improper for the trial court to usurp the role of the jury, both under just the plain text of the statute, but even if you apply the constitutional harmless error standard. So counsel, you don't see in the record where two officers testified that he crossed over the double yellow line approximately 30 times, causing oncoming traffic to swerve, uh, colliding with construction barrels, slamming on brakes to avoid collisions, and nearly hitting a flag, flagging, uh, a man flagging traffic in a construction zone. Yes, Your Honor, we acknowledge that those facts are in the record, but I think if you look at this as a spectrum, say on one extreme end of the spectrum, you have somebody driving 100 miles per hour down the wrong way of the interstate, and then you have other facts which may be sufficient to support a finding of reckless driving, but the question is whether this is so egregious, this is so especially reckless that it rises above and beyond the, um, the ordinary offense. And we cited a case in the Notice of Supplemental Authorities, State v. Mac, that discusses this principle that impaired driving is inherently reckless. And so the jury would have to find additional facts. And if they had gone through this procedure, it's just not so overwhelming that just as a matter of law, these uh, especially reckless driving would be found. But I see I'm out of time. I'll, I'll petition for you to get your file. Okay, Don't thank worry. you. May it please the court, I'm Catherine Haycock, Special Deputy Attorney General for the state in this matter. I'd like to first turn to the to defendant's first argument about his motion to dismiss. He alleges two grounds for violation, statutory violation and a constitutional violation. The statutory violation, the grounds is 15A, 1431F4, which says that he should have been released from jail um, as soon as the notice of appeal was filed. In the case of a statutory error such as that, the defendants, it's defendant's burden to show that there was lost evidence or testimony that would have been significant and helpful to his case. The burden is on defendant to show that irreparable prejudice for a statutory violation. It's well, but now counsel, when he has an accident while he's improperly incarcerated and lost memory, how does that not fit the test that you're saying? 
the irreparable prejudice? Yes. Your Honor? Well, Your Honor, turning to the irreparable prejudice, the defendant could have had his attorney submit a verification like what they routinely do for motions to suppress that says that the client gave me information contrary to the state's case prior to the district court hearing. We made a tactical decision not to have him testify in district court and to um, hear what the, the case the state presented with the testimony from Trooper Onderdonk, Trooper Pearson, Deputy Martin. But then after the district court case, we would have recommended that he testify and say X, Y, and Z contrary to the state's case. They could have submitted a verification like that, like they routinely do for motions to suppress, especially given that this is defendant's burden to show that the evidence or testimony was lost and the irreparable prejudice. That would be a great way to do it in this case. The defendant asked us to presume that, that constitutional and statutory errors are prejudice per se, but that is simply not the case. The prejudice comes from what was lost, not the mere fact of the injury like we have in this case. There's no presumption of an exculpatory memory. The defendant has to take that extra step of showing, at least alleging that he would have testified in opposition to the state's case. That could really push it over the edge in a close case, although this is not a close case. Also, the, def the defendant's counsel testified in Superior. So it's the state's position that he he would have had to say he would have testified in order for this to be a prejudicial error. Is that what you're saying? I can't think of a better way to show that evidence or testimony. But is that required? Is it's not I'm required, asking. Your Honor. No, it's absolutely not that required. That seemed to be your argument. No, I, I do not mean to imply that he has to say that he would have testified, but to show that evidence or testimony was lost, that would be a good way to do it. To say I would have testified, I had this information that, that I could have shared um, before this unfortunate incident in the jail. The defendant's counsel testified, not testified, he argued at the motion hearing that even if he wanted to testify, which is, which is pretty close to an admission that he wouldn't, would not have testified in Superior Court. The attorney was very careful not to admit to any lost testimony and didn't say that testimony was on the table in Superior Court. I've also wanted to point out, I don't think the defendant could have said anything in Superior Court that would have changed the state's proof beyond a reasonable doubt of the DWI in this case. The three law enforcement officers testified to these extensive facts about the DWI. The defendant drove erratically on a busy highway in Leicester shortly after schools had dismissed for over seven miles in at least 15 minutes. He pulled down in front of Trooper Underdonk and crossed over the double yellow lines, causing her to slam on the brakes. He crossed over the double yellow line over 30 times, repeatedly caused oncoming traffic to swerve. He didn't promptly proceed through a green light. He slammed on brakes to avoid hitting a school bus. He collided with a construction barrel, constantly slammed on brakes to avoid additional collisions. He attempted to rev his vehicle and spin his vehicle's tires while he was braking. A school bus moved forward to get out of the, of the defendant's way. He almost hit a flag man. He drove in the middle of the roadway. And when the officers approached the defendant, he was slumped over and asleep. He was incoherent. He manifested six of six clues on the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, three of six clues on the walk and turn. On the one leg stand test, the defendant swayed while balancing. On the Romberg balance test, he incorrectly estimated 30 seconds. He had droopy eyes and small pupils. 
So the state overwhelmingly proved that the defendant was impaired, and it's hard to imagine that the defendant could have offered anything in Superior Court that would have, um, would have um, shed any doubt on the state's case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'd also want to point out this was, there was not a false choice here. This is akin to me blocking the doorway and saying, you can't leave this room, you're not free to leave, when you didn't want to leave in the first place. That's what we have here. There's a technical violation, but there's no injury, but there's no actual harm in this case. Defendant has failed to show any, any prejudice to his case and meet his burden. There's no prejudice per se without any offer of irreparable prejudice. The defendant relies on McCoy versus Louisiana to argue that the right to meaningfully participate in one's defense and that his decision to testify is a substantial right subject to structural error review. But McCoy versus Louisiana has never been extended beyond the attorney-client relationship. That case clarified the line between tactical and fundamental decisions that an attorney <coughs> makes and the defendant himself makes and said that while some decisions are exclusively made by a criminal defendant, such as whether to waive the right to a jury trial, to testify and to appeal, matters of trial management are the lawyer's province and not the defendant. So McCoy establishes a right, an infringement by counsel only. It doesn't extend it beyond that. In the 756 cases interpreting McCoy since 2018, and I went through and shepherdized this and read all of the head, head notes last week, all address the difference between tactical and fundamental decisions solely in the attorney-client relationship context. Those 756 cases throughout the U.S. and the federal courts are in terms of concessions, stipulations, objections, disagreements about whether to testify, whether to appeal, whether to consult an expert, waiving a jury trial, which jury instructions to request and which defenses to present, never extended beyond these decisions made within the attorney-client relationship. If it was the case that a defendant does have this right to meaningful participation in one's defense, any defendant who has mental or psychological deficits, intellectual disabilities, who's incompetent, impaired, incapacitated, who may have divided attention because of PTSD or of young or advanced age could always argue that their uh, participation is not meaningful if the outcome of the trial does not go their way. McCoy versus Louisiana has never held this very generalized structural error review. I guess, Counsel, on, on the argument of that, um, which I understand the premise of your argument, but a lot of those positions would not be um, where they were not in the custody of the state as a result of the resulting harm. So how do you balance uh, the resulting harm being caused when being in the custody of the state? Well, I think that's where we go with it. So this is not structural error, and then we do have to look to irreparable prejudice. Under the constitutional standards set forth in 15A954, trial court must dismiss the charges if it determines that the constitutional rights have been fragrantly violated and there's irreparable prejudice. So it's not structural error. We're looking under the statute determine, to determine whether there is flagrant constitutional violations and the irreparable prejudice. And again, the state contends that there was an irreparable prejudice here. There's not even an allegation of it. 
And since it's not structural error and the defendant has not made any allegations of irreparable prejudice, then the trial court properly denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. The only six recognized structural errors are the total deprivation of the right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment, the denial of the right to self-representation under the Sixth Amendment, which this is kind of a, a hybrid of the two of those, the other four are racial discrimination in the selection of grand jurors, failure to correctly instruct the jury on reasonable doubt, denial of the right to a public trial, and denial of the right to an impartial tribunal. This is not a new structural error that, that the court recognized. It's more of a hybrid between the right to counsel and the right to self-representation under the Sixth Amendment. State would also point out that the defendant presumably met with his attorneys in the 23 months between the arrest and the district court trial and likely had a say in trial strategy at that time. Um, he spoke with his attorneys and came up with a plan with them for how the trial was to be handled in district court um, and would have had a say in preparation of defenses at that time. He also indicated he wished to remain silent when questioned by the Superior Court about his decision to testify, and he failed to renew his motion to dismiss on constitutional grounds at the close of the evidence, which isn't required, but it does go to the prejudice to show that this wasn't on his mind at the time that the, the evidence closed. He did not um, mention that he was still concerned about his ability to testify and whether that had been lost. But the state concedes it's not required for him to It's do not that. required, Your Honor. No. Preserve it. Turning to the resentencing issue for DWI, the state admits that this is a Blakely error, that the aggravating factor was not submitted to the jury on the DWI, but contends that this was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt um, because the jury would have found this aggravating factor beyond a reasonable doubt based on the evidence that was presented at trial. Again, defendant drove erratically on a busy highway after school had dismissed for many miles over several minutes, crossed the double yellow line over 30 times, caused on tr coming traffic to swerve, did not promptly proceed through a green light, slammed on brakes to avoid running into a school bus. He collided with a construction barrel, constantly slammed on brakes to avoid additional collisions. He attempted to rev engine and spin tires almost hit the flag man, and most importantly, he was found guilty of reckless driving, wanton disregard. This is clearly an elevated standard for an aggravating factor, but based on all of these terrible facts, the state would contend that the jury would have found this aggravator beyond a reasonable doubt, and that the trial court's finding of such is, is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, such that the defendant would have been sentenced as a level three anyway. Now, has there been any cases applying the harmless error standard after the statute was amended? There have not been any in the DWI context, Your Honor. But again, the state would contend that it would be, it would still be level three based on the harmless error in finding the aggravator. I think the difference between Geisler Crane, which the, the defendant relies on, that says that where only mitigating factors are properly found, the trial court must impose a level five. And in that case, the trial court um, found that the aggravating factor was substantially counterbalanced by the mitigating factor, which was incorrect. 
the aggravating factor was improperly found, the mitigating factor was properly found, so in that case the defendant had to be sentenced to level five. Here we don't have any mitigating factors that have to be balanced, like there was in Geisler Crane. The defendant was going to be sentenced at level four, and it, for the aggravated sentence, level three. Level five was never on the table. So the state would contend that um, the, the defendant does not need to be resentenced for DWI. So the state, the trial court found three aggravating factors, is that correct? Yes, Your Honor, she did. And the state had only given the indication that it was going to submit one to the jury, is that correct? That's right, Your Honor, especially reckless. And it did not submit that with, and it had the opportunity to do that, did it not? Was there not a charge conference where the judge asked about the verdict sheet and all of that? There was. And the state did not no. ask to have it submitted? It did not. But was aware of it because they had already noticed it? That's correct. Okay, thank you. The state concedes a remand on the misdemeanor conviction for reckless driving because the trial court imposed a period of probation of 36 months even though the um, statutory maximum period of probation is um, 6 to 18 months. So we concede a remand on that matter. As far as the ineffective assistance of counsel, to show that, um, the two elements are that counsel's performance was deficient and that it, that it fell below an objective standard of reasonableness and that there's a reasonable probability that but for the error, the result of the defendant's trial would have been different. And with this case, if this court allows the defendant's writ of cert, this issue would become moot. But in any event, the defendant's counsel in this case did advocate for a lesser sentence in terms of a safe driving record, and the state contends there's no reasonable possibility that the sentence would have been different given the aggravating factor is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt and a level three sentence was properly imposed under 2179. Now just to review, the state would, would reiterate that the defendant has not shown irreparable prejudice, that there's no, it's not prejudice per se that there's an injury that prejudice comes from what was lost, not the mere fact of injury. There's no presumption of exculpatory memory, and the defendant has to take the extra step of at least alleging that he would have testified in opposition. Here we don't know what was usable in his memory because he didn't offer that into the motion to dismiss hearing. The attorney could have found a verification but chose not to do so. This is not structural error, and under under the irreparable prejudice standard, the defendant has not met his burden to show that the motion to dismiss was improperly denied. If there are no other questions, I will rest on my brief. You may have uh, four minutes. Thank you. I'll go fast. Given Judge um, Gore's extensive questioning throughout your... Uh, <laughs> I'm fine Thank with you. I'm fine with giving a five if you are, John. Um, just a few points. I think, again, returning to the dispute over what the right is at, at issue here. In McCoy, just a few quotes. Um, the court discusses it at, in terms of the client's protected autonomy right. The fundamental legal principle that a defendant must be allowed to make his own choices about the proper way to protect his own liberty. The defendant's right to make fundamental choices about his own defense. 
in McCoy, there's simply no room for a standard that would say, well, the client has to show he would have testified and he wanted to say X, Y, thing, Z things. The, the right is much broader than that, and it is structural error when it, its effects are too hard to measure or where the error will inevitably signal fundamental unfairness. Well, counsel, how do you get by the fact that he had all of this time to prepare for the district court case before this and the parade of horribles of his driving? Yes, Your Honor. As to the first part of it, the answer to that is simple, I think. He lost in district court. So he wanted a de novo trial in superior court. But the facts wouldn't have changed any between the district court and the superior court. Well, I think that's an assumption, but it might not necessarily be an accurate one. There isn't a record made of district court proceedings, and it's possible in a de novo trial in superior court, maybe somebody would have remembered something differently, maybe there would be different evidence. I do know that his trial counsel, it's clear from the record, tried to present defenses based on drowsy driving and medical conditions. And I think the point is it's impossible to say whether those defenses might have been more successful had this protected autonomy right been preserved. I just wanted to make one point as well on the sentencing issue, and then I'd be happy to answer any other questions. In State v. Hughes, this court was very clear with respect to the notice provision, which is part of the same statute. It was passed at the same time in 2006. There's simply no basis to interpret the provisions differently as a textual matter. The court said that even though the defendant did not contest the existence of the aggravating factors and no additional notice would have changed the result at sentencing, the defendant was still prejudiced. And the court said that allowing the state to fulfill its notice obligation by relying on constructive notice or district court proceedings would render the statute effectively meaningless. A statute must be construed, if possible, to give meaning and effect to all of its provisions. And the court further said, and this is at page 83 to 84 of the opinion, that the error in this case was not the state's failure to provide notice of the aggravating factor. It was the trial court's reliance on an aggravating factor improperly when the statutory provisions were not followed. So because this issue of the plain text of the statute has never been interpreted by this court, we believe that the court should enforce the plain language of the statute and it should follow the approach in Hughes and Geisler-Crane and find prejudice because the court had no discretion to rely on aggravating factors that were not found by the jury and the court was required to sentence Mr. King to a level four, absent the aggravating factors. The court had no discretion, unlike the Structured Sentencing Act, to weigh the aggravating and mitigating factors. So we would ask that the judgment below be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both. We'll take the case under advisement.